Hey everyone, welcome to the Goodbye Privacy Podcast. I am your host, James Azar. Find me on Twitter, James underscore Azar1. And join me every Wednesday for a privacy conversation under the hashtag SISOTalk at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. In today's episode, the EU Biometric Database. Is it the future of security and privacy? But before we get started on today's episode... I want to encourage you and ask you humbly to support the CyberHub Engage group of podcasts that we put on for you, where you can support us by being a Patreon. Uh, if you go to patreon.com forward slash CyberHub Engage, again, that's patreon.com forward slash CyberHub Engage, and for as little as one lousy dollar a month, you can support Micah and mine's vision of producing the best content about your privacy and security without having to bow down to demands. (laughs) You get to watch this very podcast here live, interact with me during this very episode, and ask questions at the very end. So make sure you go to patreon.com forward slash cyberhub engage. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash cyberhub engage to support us. Check out our cool swag. Check out all the great benefits that we've put together to make sure that you have the latest, greatest, and all things that have to do with privacy and cyber security. And now let's get to today's episode. So China and India have built the world's largest biometric database, but the European, the EU, the European Union, is about to join this very club. The Common Identity Repository, or as it's known by CIR, will consolidate biometric data on almost all visitors and migrants to the EU bloc, as well as some of EU citizens, connecting existing criminal, asylum, and migration databases and integrating new ones. It has the potential to affect hundreds of millions of people. The plan for the database, first proposed in 2016 and approved by the EU Parliament on April 16th of this year, was sold as a way to better track and monitor terrorists, criminals, and unauthorized immigrants. The system will target the fingerprints and identity data for visitors and migrants initially, immigrants initially, and represents the first step towards building a truly EU-wide citizen database. At the same time, though, some of the critics argue its mere existence will increase the potential for hacks, leaks, and law enforcement abuse of the information. In the EU, where privacy is enshrined in the Union's Charter of Fundamental Rights, some people are calling the actual creation of the CIS a point of no return. Now, before we kind of go into the CIR and really what it is, let's for a second consider what's being consolidated. So the big, uh, the big point of this whole thing is we need biometrics to track everyone who comes into the EU, tracking our own citizens, how people move in and around the EU, and doing so without requiring documentation for the most part. But here's the other part of this. The CIR will be a repository of identity records, fingerprints, photographs of visiting or resident non-EU citizens and some EU citizens. Meaning 
anyone who visits the EU will be subject to the CIR. It'll be searchable by immigration, border, and law enforcement authorities across the continent, and it has a pretty hefty price tag of around $1.2 billion through 2027. Considering the fact that Europe in 2018 had 718 million international visitors, the CIR is probably going to have information on hundreds of millions of non-EU citizens once it's fully in effect. And here's the caveat. The new CIR system will wrap together three existing EU databases of asylum seekers, foreign visitors, criminals, and missing people with three new databases of criminals and of visitors entering and exiting the EU. The flow of non-residents and non-visa holders in the block will be tracked by a system similar to the U.S. Electronic System for Travel Authorization, also known as ISTA. It will require visitors, including those from the U.S., to submit to a check prior to departure for Europe starting in 2021. Although the specific details of how this all works is still in the works. However, unlike in India and China, the EU system won't automatically cover every run-of-the-mill EU citizen who has not been charged with a crime. And it's not clear how many of the roughly half a billion Europeans would ultimately come under the system. By contrast, the Indian biometric system covers 1.24 billion people, and the Chinese government obviously operates a vast biometric system, and it's particularly invasive in parts of Western China. Here's the aspect of all this. We knew that sometime, somewhere, we were going to move to biometrics. Fact is... Biometrics are more reliable than people creating passwords because it's harder to fake a retina scan or someone's voice. But there's also another aspect to this. This CIR repository in the EU is really more targeting visitors than it is its own citizens. And now the question lies is what rights do visitors have on their data? What ensures us that this data isn't being used at a later point in time to spy on us once we return to our home country? How do we know that this data is secure? There's a lot of different challenges that lie specifically within this data that address this specific issue. Part of it has to do with the Schengen Information System, the SIS and the Eurodact and the VIS. So all three of these systems today essentially compose every single aspect of the borderless EU. But once you have this system in place, what does that do to Schengen? Or what does it do to the Eurodact system or the VIS, the Visa Information System? And how would it affect its interoperability? And how would those proposals really impact the way people are viewed within the EU? 
Now, before we proceed, I want to invite you to join us on September 11th, 2019 in beautiful Atlanta, Georgia for the annual CyberHub Summit. CyberHub Summit is the go-to cybersecurity summit for executives and those passionate about security. This isn't a conference, it's an experience. And the experience on CyberHub Summit is helping attendees experience cyber different. This year's CyberHub Summit has an amazing agenda of how we can all work to address the various cybersecurity challenges on topics like homeland security, fintech, and industrial control systems, all three of which are critical to national infrastructure and the, produ the production of commerce. Make sure to go to cyberhubsummit.com forward slash James. Again, that's cyberhubsummit.com forward slash James to pre-register now for the summit as it is sure to sell out early. Tickets go on sale this week, so make sure you go to cyberhubsummit.com forward slash James for more information on this year's summit and pre-register now. As we get back to security versus privacy, one of the key aspects of a biometric database and has always been the case has been Homeland Security. And this has been the argument by many of the proponents of the CIR system in Europe. The plan for the system emerged in 2016 when the EU was overflowing with migrants coming from Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, and other places of the world. Brussels had a, endured a terrorist attack that killed 34 months after the devastating Paris attacks that we all remember that killed hundreds of Parisians all over the uh, French capital. Advocates for the database say that responsible terror cells might have been found quickly had law enforcement agencies been able to easily exchange information across borders. At the time, the German interior minister, Thomas de Mizier, put it bluntly, privacy is, not, privacy is nice, but in times of crisis like these, security comes first. And so this is a common argument we hear whenever it comes to privacy. Do you want to be secure or do you want to be private? The question is, how do you ensure that you can have both? And that's the challenge of our generation. That's the challenge for our future generations. Because building a complex system like this in the name of Homeland Security brings up some really big questions about data security. One of which is it's going to demand and this is uh, Maya Ganesh, uh, a tech researcher at Lupana University in Germany. She says, and I quote, it demands constant vigilance because you've got all these databases produced at different points of times. And in making it interoperable, there are constant threats of leaks, hacks, and gaps. The European Parliament and the EU Council have promised to address those concerns through proper safeguards to protect personal privacy and to regulate officers' access to data. But in 2016, we all remember, um, they passed the GDPR, which went into enforcement a year ago this month, and we'll be talking about it in exactly two weeks on the Goodbye Privacy Podcast. But we all know that total security is a very tall order. Germany is currently dealing with multiple instances of police officers allegedly leaking personal information to far-right groups. 
Meanwhile, a Swedish hacker went to prison for hacking, in, hacking into Denmark's public record system in 2012 and dumping online the personal data of hundreds of thousands of, citizen, of citizens and migrants. So, what could go wrong? There's little precedent for such a massive database. And India's Aadhaar, the universal identification system that launched nearly a decade ago in India, provides one roadmap for the risks. But 1.24 billion people now have an Aadhaar number. And according to Unique Identification Authority of India, that's equivalent to 95% of the country's population. And unlike in India, the EU system won't include unique numbers and is less comparable to a national identity number system. The Indian system was promoted as a way to create financial opportunity by banking the unbanked and ease of access to public services for the poor folks in India. It also was hailed as a way to prevent fraud and money laundering. To get a 12-digit Aadhaar number, available to Indian citizens and residents, applicants had to provide 10 fingerprints, a photo, and scans of both irises. It's an impressive accomplishment, but the Indian database is ridiculously insecure. This is, again, Ganesh, a researcher. Last year, a hacker figured out a way to generate unauthorized Aadhaar numbers without biometric information. Access to the entire database was being sold via WhatsApp message for less than $10. Researcher, researchers also found that anyone could become a database admin and add other admins. And there are ongoing reports of the utility company Indane and Telecom Reliance Geo accidentally leaving their customer database, including Adhar numbers, open to snoopers. Critics questioning the security of the Aadhaar system say they've experienced harassment and surveillance from the government. So we obviously realize that there are challenges in securing such a large database of information for citizens. We also realize that if we look at India as a precedent for this, that there are some flaws. In researching this story, one of the funny and, and kind of one of, I don't want to say funny, but I want to say one of the disturbing aspects of this was how one-sided a lot of the mainstream media was on this whole story. So they use India as kind of the company, uh, as kind of the example of a country that has billions of billions of billions of citizens' biometric data, and they're not securing it. On the same hand, they don't really talk about Chinese. Um, f they don't really talk about the Chinese aspect of their database. The Chinese aspect of their database is very, very different. Fact is that there has been no proven leaks of the Chinese biometric database. There has been recorded cases of human right abuse done in China using this very specific database, specifically in Western China to the Muslim minority in China. But outside of that, we haven't seen leaks or breaches of this specific database, indicating that either no one's really gone after the Chinese 
that could be one point of argument to be made or that the Chinese have found a way to properly secure their biometric database. And if so, this is where international cooperation on cybersecurity is needed to learn and address these specific concerns. So we ask ourselves, what's next? So the backers of the CIR see it as a, as a way to really easily uh, work the border guards and law enforcement, and, and it eases their work. But because it targets people moving in and out of the EU borders, here, here's where the researchers come in. The researchers argue it could also be it could also disproportionately target and track immigrants and refugees coming to the bloc, subjecting them to discrimination or harassment. And here's my point on that specific claim. This is always a claim that's being made by researchers in regards to database. However, there's not one factual fact to support this very claim. Now, I'm not arguing for the system or against the system. My concern is the privacy and the rights of those who enter into the EU. Having said that, we all say that when you travel to a specific nation, you are subject to that nation's laws. But you also have rights within that nation. So do you get EU citizens' rights to your, na to your data under GDPR with this repository of with this repository and that's a question that have that has of yet to be answered and as a, as you look at the interoperability aspect of it it's really supposed to ease how how different countries access data and make it so that everyone gets access to one larger database the question is is it secure? And to get to that, we go back to the researcher Ganesh, where she warns that leaks and hacks are inherent of any database, which is well known. It's well documented. We've seen it. We know it. She's not renewing anything over there. But how does the EU plan to address that? So don't do large databases just doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense because of a few things. If you're not doing large databases, then what are you doing? How are you storing data? How are you addressing the challenges that arise from those from really being able to track and secure your borders? The argument for this whole system has been that it's needed to track people who visit the EU who could be a threat to the EU. It would also help facilitate how criminals or people who are on specific watch lists move in and around the EU. One of the common arguments that was done for the system was after the Brussels attack or the Paris attacks, how the attackers went to Belgium or Holland immediately thereafter but here's the point of all this when these people cross the border they don't go through a border entry it's no different for, than driving from new york to new jersey it's an open border there's no border guards there checking if you move in and move out 
So if this is the argument that's being made for this system, then the question remains, how do you track it across borders? Because most of the time in the name of Homeland Security, because this is the argument that's being made for the system is it's Homeland Security. Most of the terrorists that did any work in the EU traveled from state to state and country to country in cars. They didn't go to the airport. They didn't head to the train station. They got in cars and they drove across. So none of that really absolves or proves the point for the CIR repository. Furthermore, in a lot of the uh, opinion papers that have been written about this, and specifically when you study this whole scenario, you realize that more and more governments want biometrics. They want a biometric database. It makes sense. And while biometrics in large are more secure in identifying a person, the question on the other end becomes, how is the government securing this information? And the EU has no clear way that they're discussing how they plan to secure this. Now, I don't anticipate them to come out with a man with a manual or a framework of how they plan to secure the CIR system because that would just be foolish. On the other end, there has to be an ask in terms of security. How long do you get to store my information? When do you delete my information from this database? If I enter the EU and you take my fingerprints, you scan my iris, how long do you get to keep that information for? And at what point does that information get deleted? What are my rights to get that information? What are my rights to know who's accessing my information? And does this apply to flying through the EU as well? So I've, for those who don't know, I've, I've, I've been blessed and I've been very fortunate to, to travel to over 100 countries globally. And I've flown through the European Union quite frequently. And oftentimes when you're flying in a layover through the EU, you still have to go through customs, meaning you go through passport control on your way through even if it's international. So if I took a flight from New York to Frankfurt and then from Frankfurt to Singapore, I'd still go through customs in Germany. So when I go through customs on a layover in Germany, are you going to use the CIR system? Meaning am I going to have to give my fingerprints even though I was just traveling through the EU, not staying in the EU? Now those are very important questions to ask. They're important to ask because biometrics, by and large, are extremely important. And governments having our biometrics entails us giving a piece of our very own DNA to a government to store in a database to be used for purposes of what this law was written for of homeland security. And while the EU faces numerous security challenges within its ranks 
and between its citizens and the rise of various different illicit groups in the EU, the system should more be targeting those there than those traveling through or visiting the EU. The other question of all this is, how much longer is this going to make the lines at the airports, train stations, and otherwise? With Brexit being delayed until October, what does it mean when you're flying from Paris to London or taking the Eurostar uh, train to go from Paris to London? Because prior to Brexit, it was seamless. You'd board a train four hours later, you're in Paris or London, depending which port you departed from, and you'd come right off and go about your day. With Brexit, that's bound to change. But now the question remains, are you going to scan everyone's fingerprints every single time? What's the process behind it? How do you verify identity and how do you verify and how do you keep the database authentic in nature? There's a lot of questions to be posed to the EU on this aspect, some of which are detailed in an in, in interoperability opinion um, that was written in um, April of last year, um, addressing this some of these same questions. And many of it discussed the complexity of not only data protection, of governance and supervision of the system. When you have this large scale of a database, the questions get asked of not only how do you protect this data, but how do you ensure its governance and supervision? Who's supervising the system? Who's in charge of its governance? Is it a coalition? Is it a country? How do we know that the system won't be abused? And a lot of the proposals for the system have already been brought on to discuss some of the pending legal challenges that it will likely face in many courts across the entire EU. Some countries within the EU are very much against this system. There has been many leaders of specific EU nations that have come up against this very biometric system, although they've lost out to the vote to the bigger partners in the EU, mainly Germany, France, Belgium, Holland, Spain, and others. When you look at the recommendations for security, one of the key aspects that keeps coming up about this system is, well, we need to combat identity fraud. We need to facilitate a appeals process for someone. We need to facilitate some sort of framework that would address any wrongdoing of the system, of the CIR specifically. And also, how do you facilitate the access to the data for law enforcement? Meaning, if a cop pulls you over as you're driving down a highway in France or an autobahn in Germany, what does that really mean? Can he access this database? 
on what grounds does he get to access this database? And a lot of the document writes out the word terrorist, terror offenders, terror offenses, or serious criminal offenses. Stuff that would help Europol, Interpol's version in Europe, identify someone. But this is where we get into the final question. Is is it privacy by design or is it privacy by default? We have to address and the EU must address privacy and how it works in this entire CIR repository. What are the rights of visitors? What are the rights of immigrants? What are the rights of EU citizens? And mainly specifically, they're talking about EU citizens who have been convicted of a crime that would be part of this database at its launch. So are they going to rally up all the criminals and invite them to their local police station to get fingerprinted and get their facial, get their photograph taken and get their irises scanned? And if that's the case, how is that not discrimination? Is a crime that one once did 10 years ago still make him part of this database? At what point does a criminal get out of this database? I couldn't find anywhere to answer those questions for me. Anywhere. So I'm left challenged because realizing that as this system was passed into law in the EU just nearly under a month ago, the fact that its implementation is expected to be in 2021 with full implementation by 2027, it lets me understand that my next trip to Europe may be no different than my first trip to China. No electronics, a burner phone, and a quick in and out. And now next time on Goodbye Privacy, Microsoft, the rebuilding of an empire and accessing our personal data. That's it for me. I am James Azar. You can follow me on Twitter, James underscore Azar1. You are listening to the Goodbye Privacy Podcast, hashtag Data Cartels. So make sure you join the conversation on Twitter under hashtag Data Cartels. Email us your opinions or tweet. Talk to us on your opinions and concerns. And if you have any issues of privacy that rise up, make sure you go to cyberhubengage.com or reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, or anywhere, um, any social media platform you use at cyberhubengage. And as always, you can go to patreon.com forward slash cyberhubengage to support our podcast. Till next week, my name is James Cesar, and this is the Goodbye Privacy Podcast.